Thanks for joining us this week, and welcome to Mutuality Matters, a weekly podcast hosted by CBE International, where our mission is to promote the biblical message that God calls women and men of all cultures, races, and classes to share authority equally in service and leadership in the home, church, and work. Let's get into this week's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Mutuality Matters CBE podcast. Today, it is our pleasure to welcome the Bishop, Reverend Professor Emily Onyango. And our focus, as always, is egalitarian theology and human flourishing. Welcome, welcome. She is the first woman ordained as a bishop in the Anglican Church. She serves the uh, Diocese of Bondo. She is a professor of theology at St. Paul's University in Lemuru, Kenya. And of course, she began her career also as an Anglican priest. So it is a wonderful pleasure to welcome you, Emily. Thank you so much. Well, I've had the pleasure of visiting Emily's community many times in Bondo, outside uh, uh, Kazumu, where all the hippos live and where they've recently discovered a vast resource <laughs> called oil. <laughs> uh, and Emily has done amazing work, both as a professor of many uh, priests now serving throughout East Africa, can you share with us, Emily, a bit of your life in Bondo and for the families, men and women and children that you serve? Uh, what was it like for you growing up in this community and serving this community? Living in the community in Bondo, mostly a rural area, and therefore there's a lot of fresh air. Uh, there's a great pressure of living in the community because of the hospitality. You know, people have a lot of um, love for each other and uh, people interact with each other. So growing up in this community was a great pleasure. And I think interacting with the children, with the young people has been a great pleasure to me. So I think it's a great pleasure. And it's a community in which people have a lot of joy, you know, despite many underlying issues, most of the people always have a smile. And therefore, it's a community which is lovely to live in. Mm, I can attest to that. And when I visited, it was wonderful to see that joy lived out in the simplest of pleasures. So, Emily, could you tell us how did you end up taking the path of priest and theological professor? Uh, I had a great influence from my Sunday school teacher, a lady whom I admired and became my role model. And um, later on, um, when I was in high school, I also admired my high school teacher who was a born again Christian and who was teaching religious education. So I admired both they are serving the church and also teaching ministry. And I think um, one of the lessons I admired most was of Prophet Jeremiah. And I think I saw myself as a Jeremiah, the prophet, 
I, I don't know why, but um, these uh, two ladies really influenced me into the church ministry. So Emily, we now have two women ordained as bishops in the Anglican Church of Kenya. Can you describe for our listeners the path that led to your ordination as bishop? Because I do remember talking to you about this in South Africa when we were at a conference together about four or five years before your ordination as bishop. And it didn't seem to you at the time that this opportunity would be on the horizon. So I'm, we're all curious to hear about your journey to becoming a bishop. There has been a long debate in the Anglican Church of Kenya over the consecration of women as bishops. The church had accepted uh, the ordination of women as priests, but I think in Africa there was this discussion that uh, the more, more women are consecrated, the more there's disunity because there are some of the provinces who somehow believe that it is not biblical for women to serve in the ministry of the church as priests and as bishops. And I think the Anglican Church in Kenya took a long time in discussion. However, the Anglican Church in Kenya is so much influenced by the revival spirituality, where when people are called, you know, you are called by God. And if you are called by God, you are called to serve him with your gifts. And I think that overrode all the arguments in the Anglican Church. And they believed that actually, for us, uh, you know, when you are called, when you are born again, then God calls you according to your gifts into the ministry. And I think the House of Bishops felt that uh, out of that spirituality of the Anglican Church in Kenya, they felt they should go ahead. And uh, if women were called to the office of a bishop, they should not be a stumbling block. So I think it's the kind of spirituality which is as influenced the Anglican Church of Kenya. Wonderful. That's a terrific story. Could you explain for our, to our listeners uh, just a little bit about the East African revival and the role of women in that revival? Uh, the East African revival movement started in around 1938. Uh, it was a response to nominalism in the church, where most of the people came to the church uh, not for any spiritual nature, but to get education. And therefore, um, it started in Rwanda. Rwanda at that time was part of the uh, part of Uganda. When when they did Bible study together, they realized that um, they were sinners and they needed the grace of God. And um, out of the meeting of two people in Rwanda, the church uh came to the realization that there is need for revival many people came to the knowledge of christ and then in the revival movement when people came to the knowledge of christ most of them uh felt uh that uh, they were sinners saved by the grace of god and god gave you the 
spirit to serve him as per your gifts. Right from the word go, women uh, were leaders within the revival movement. And um, they gave their testimonies, they preached, because in the revival movement, what mattered most was that you were filled with the spirit of God. So one of the bodies within the church, which really encouraged uh, egalitarianism is the revival movement. Because what mattered is that you had made, met Christ and uh, he had given you the commission to go and preach the gospel. So right from the word go, women were really empowered mm. within the revival movement. Wow. I just took a class on um, theologies of the Holy Spirit, and we studied what you just talked about. To hear it come from you, though, it just came alive. Wow. Wow. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about, a little bit more about your own personal background and maybe some insights you can give our listeners. Um, I know you've chaired the Africa Center for Biblical Equity, and you're a founding member of the Circle of Concerned African Women Theologies. Can you explain the mission of each one of those and why they formed? Uh, the Circle of Concerned Women Theologians uh, was uh, founded in 1989 in Ghana. At that time, there was a concern that uh, women had no opportunity to serve in the church and in the ministry. You know, studying theology was um, tagged to serving in the ministry. And since women were not ordained, nobody was ready to sponsor women for theological training. So, Masi Odioye and a few women uh, called for a meeting in uh, Ghana to strategize how uh, women can be encouraged to study theology. So, so that even if they are not yet ordained, but they are there, you know, they are present in the ministry because presence, uh, you know, really matters. And therefore, women met in Ghana. Most of them were women theologians from different denominations, some studying uh, religion, religion at the universities, some in theological colleges. And there was a discussion on why we think women are not getting opportunity to serve in the church. We realized that one of the major issues of stumbling block was culture and the way theology was taught. And so the circle of concerned women theologians started by doing research and writing on issues especially on um, culture and theology to add women's voices and to help uh, the church leaders to see a different perspective and therefore i think through many books through many researches read by the church really influenced the faculties of theology, you know, and through that research and writing, it changed the minds of many of the church teachers. Actually, 
now in many faculties of theology, you can study African women theologies, you can study the Bible from the African women's perspective, and it is because the women had done the research. So it was somehow trying to do advocacy through research and writing. And also they advocated for sponsoring women to go to theological colleges. And I think that opened the way for ordination of women to the ministry. Wow. You sound like your sisters with CBE International for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and um, on uh, Tatbe, is the concern of inequality. We were looking at inequality, both gender inequality and other inequalities. One of the main challenges in Kenya is the big gap between the rich and the poor. Then there's also the issue of uh, different ethnicities. Then there's the issue of gender inequality. And we thought that it is good to do research and to discuss with the church leaders and other leaders to see how we can empower people for equality and also how we can talk about this big gap between the rich and the poor and the human rights. And therefore the center is a place for research and then we share our research with other people within the community. Emily, you've done some writing yourself, which we are proud to promote at CBE. Uh, Can you just share a bit about your recent book? Uh, My recent uh, book was on gender and development, a history of girls' education in Kenya. And I was trying to highlight how um, girls or how education, especially through the Christian schools, have helped to empower women and girls into the ministry. So it's a history of Christian women who have used both their Christian faith and education to be empowered within the society. It's powerful. I recommend it to everyone. I have underlined probably three or four paragraphs every two or three pages. So it's it's an amazing document of his, documenting the history of women, Christian women in Kenya, which is Emily's one of Emily's specialties. Emily, based on the patriarchal culture of the church in Kenya, your ordination strikes me as monumental. And yet I, I know having unfortunately been unable to attend your ordination ceremony, I heard there was some resistance within the church community. Uh, and I wondered how, what were the factors that changed that resistance, overcame that resistance? Um, how, how did you and your fellow clergy address the challenges of your ordination as a woman? I think um, there was still a big debate of uh, uh, women's ministry in the church. And um, as an excuse, people claimed that um, there was no man in the church 
you know, because looking at the lifestyle of the bishop, their argument was that they had no money to buy for a bishop a car. There was no budget for a driver and that uh, huge lifestyle of a bishop. But I think underlying it was the whole issue of women. My approach was first of all, to come to the ministry with humility. I actually told them that I don't think, unlike the maybe the male bishops where it is an issue of power, I thought mostly it's an issue of service. So I told them, you don't have to worry, you don't have to buy for me a big vehicle, you don't have to pay me a big salary. So I think one inroad into acceptance was to work with humility and um, just do my work of service. And I think through my interaction through this year uh, with the um, Christians and with the clergy, I think humility has helped me because then they realize the whole issue is service, not about power, because I think the whole issue was how do you want to nini with power, to interact with power and to claim power? So um, I think my approach to it is service with humility, reaching out to the people who felt that um, this was a big uh, burden to the church. And that has helped me. And uh, I feel accepted and the resistance has gone down. And um, I think it's giving me an opportunity. Uh, one of the main uh, challenges the bishop wanted me to address is the issue of empowerment of clergy, continuous empowerment of clergy. And also we have evangelists and lay readers in the church. And um, I thought this was an opportunity, and this is what I'm working on. I'm coming up with a curriculum, and especially to look at the way we look at scripture, uh, look at empowerment of ministers, uh, both socially and economically, and discuss with the clergy. I think for a long time, there has been this thought that when somebody becomes a bishop, you are very far removed from the people. So I think I'm trying to use a different approach where we are colleagues and we are empowering each other in the ministry. So what I'm trying to work on is to come up with a curriculum for empowerment of clergy and clergy spouses and um, to empower people for ministry and uh, socially. And I think, uh, I have talked to most of the clergy and the approach is working. Fantastic. So you took a system that the bishop was really seen as someone with a lot of power. There was a lot of um, budget and finances that were devoted to the lifestyle of the bishop with cars and drivers. And you came in saying, I think the bishop is here to serve the people, and I don't need all of those things that look like power. And so 
I'm just right now, your approach is to serve, which just seems so obvious and yet is so revolutionary. And then you're working right now on empowering the clergy to serve and work with the community rather than to have the separation with power. Did I, did I catch all of that right? Yeah, you captured it right. So the whole issue is service. And hopefully through that example, the clergy also realize that our call is about service. All Christians are called to serve regardless. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm going to rewind a little bit. Um, Back to when you were elected, uh, during your your acceptance speech, you said that you would be joining a house of brother bishops, but prayed they would remember to include you as a sister bishop. It sounds like that's happening. But this demonstrates an understanding that while the ordination last year was monumental, moving forward would require an age-old system of brothers to intentionally change to include sisters. Can you share with us some of the practical implications of these changes? I think um, me and uh, Bishop Ross, we are very happy. And I think um, I'm happy that it didn't take long before Bishop Ross was um, elected to be a diocesan bishop. So we are two of us in the House of Bishops. And I think that makes it easier. Um, I think um, practically to challenge the patriarchal system is very difficult, you know, and the bishops are used to be brothers in that house and to address issues in their own uh, way. But I think for me, presence, first of all, being present inside there has changed a lot. And I know several times they forget and they call themselves brothers and they say, sorry, we also have our sisters um, <laughs> inside here. Oops, I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> but I think um, just taking it lightly and having a sense of humor on all those are quite helpful. Humor because breaks I down think... a lot of walls. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it does. So, <laughs> I I think um, we have felt welcomed, actually. The bishops have been quite helpful. And I think this has brought a new way of understanding on the way things are uh, discussed. You know, since we are inside there, we have the opportunity to influence the thinking on some of the issues. And um, I think now as a lecturer, who is training clergy and being a bishop, that also helps me, you know, to have an inroad into influencing things in a different way. So I think it's a long process, but we are grateful that we are inside there, and you know, part of the process, you know, we know changes will not take place overnight, but we also have to uh, intentionally try to influence change and influence things to happen in a different way. It's not easy, but I think being present there is very important. 
Well, it sounds like you have a long history of strategizing, um, actually really looking at the needs and figuring out how to communicate it so that people can hear you, which changes things. And then you have Rose there that you have the fellowship and you can do that together. That's, yeah, I can see the power of that. I was just saying that uh, having Rose has made things very good because I don't know how it would have been, you know, as one person. So that has been quite helpful. Mm. I'm so thankful for Rose and your collegial relationship with her and the influence you have in the House of Bishops. But now looking closer to home in Bondo, I understand that you're, you work closely with Bishop David Kodia, and that partnership is very strategic, not only in the long-standing relationship you have together as preparing clergy in your community, but also modeling a partnership of men and women serving side by side in leadership. And as you continue to focus on women and the inequalities they experience, obviously your work is not isolated only to women, but beside Bishop Kodia, you are giving the world, your community and beyond an example of how men and women can lead together. So can you comment on the theological implications of this type of shared leadership and also some of its practical impact between men and women in your in your church and in the wider culture? I think um, it really demonstrates, you know, even the Godhead, you know, is a trinity uh, working together. And I think it has had a lot of impact. You know, I giving example, for example, when we are in the clergy chapter, we see that um, mutuality working together. And um, the bishops have somehow, not the bishops, some of the clergy have shared that um, it's giving a very good kind of ministry whereby each one is bringing their unique gifts to the ministry and um, as we work together people see a lot of strength in that and i think there is no way there's no better way of communicating uh mutuality than working together mm. and um as we can see both the people sharing, uh, you know, in the ministry. So for me, I think it speaks louder than talking. Just seeing the two working together. Mm, exactly. Example is powerful. So Emily, my background is international public health. And many, many years ago, I got to come to Kenya and Tanzania just to see what was going on in humanitarian development. So this last question that I have is related to that largely because I'm personally curious. Um, when I think of the women and youth that compromise the overwhelming majority of the church, I can't help but think of all of the young people who see you as their bishop and the shift that this is going to create for them, like you when you saw your Sunday school teacher, 
it will create this great shift for them about what the possibilities are and how men and women can work together and they can dream. And then part of your job description is to focus on ending violence against women and encouraging child empowerment, which I just love. So can you share with us what you think the church has to offer? And what is it about our Christian faith that speaks into the humanitarian issues of violence and abuse against women? I think uh, coming out of um, African culture, many people have seen, you know, violence against women as just part of uh, the culture. But um, in uh, the Bible, emphasizes on dignity. We are both men and women are both made in the image of God. And um, my approach is always emphasizing that we are made in the image of God. We have to live a life of dignity. I think one of the issues with young girls is that being brought up, sometimes they have very low self-esteem. And I think that is one of the areas I'm focusing on, on emphasizing to the girls that they are created in the image of God. They have to maintain their self-esteem, doing Bible studies with the young girls. And um, uh, I am a board chair in some of the girls' schools. And I think that is quite helpful, just as an example to them on what leadership uh, can be. One of the main programs that I'm rolling, in fact, I'm launching it uh, in April, is the issue of mentorship of young people. In African traditional societies, young people were mentored, especially by their grandparents. I'm now saying the church is their grandparent, and therefore, I'm focusing on mentoring young from young kids in primary school to secondary school to universities. And I think I'm coming up with a program which uh, emphasizes in helping them through transitions, transitioning from primary school to secondary school, transitioning from secondary school to colleges and to the world, and also empowering them um uh, socially economically so i think my work is really emphasizing towards empowerment of young people in our community young people are the majority and most of them uh really have lost hope most of them feel misunderstood by the church and the community and i feel now being in the position of the bishop i can mentor them at the same time, I can talk to the parents. And so to me, that is a big inroad. And um, many times they are encouraged when, you know, when they have been looking at the office of the bishop, it has been far. But I think now the motherly touch, and I tell them just like in African community, now the office of the bishop is like their grandparents who offers a lot of love and teaching. So that. that is the direction I'm taking. 
Oh, it's just beautiful. Love it. We wish we had all day to speak with you, Emily, and hopefully we can invite you back in the future. Um, you have so much wisdom and I can see very clearly why God has placed you in a position of leadership as bishop and theological educator. Thank you for your passion for young people, for the women and girls of the world, and especially those in Kenya. Uh, we praise God for both you and Sister Rose as you lead and, and help men become allies at the highest level of leadership, all the way down to the local churches. And Kim? Closing thoughts on your end? Oh, I'm just thinking of kind of what you were saying at the end where the bishop was so far away and the and now has come near. I mean, what an image actually of God that comes near. And, and then there's this loving grandparent mm. and can mentor the church and can give love. Woo! Mm -hmm. Emily, I'm so glad that I have got to meet you just for a few minutes over Zoom. And I hope that somehow our paths will cross. I can follow you around and just see everything you're doing. That's right. So, Emily, would you offer a closing prayer for us and our, our listeners and in ways that and maybe some things we can pray for you as we think of this, of your work in Kenya? Yes. Um... Thank you so much. It has also been my pleasure to talk to you. And uh, I hope we will get the opportunity again. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you so much for this evening. We thank you for our fellowship. We thank you for our ministries. Especially, I thank you for Mimi and for Kim. We thank you for the ministry that they are doing. And Lord, we pray that you continue multiplying their work so that the impact can be felt in the world. We thank you for calling us to be uh, servers in your world. And Lord, we just pray that your name will be glorified in our lives. For us, this in Jesus' name. Thank you, Emily. Mm -hmm. we and we will certainly be praying for you and the work that you are doing, especially with the young people in Kenya and their families. Hi, Kim. You want to move to Bondo, Kenya? Yes, I do. Oh, my gosh. I was so inspired <laughs> by Emily. I felt like, you know, I'm in seminary right now, and everything she said was so... I felt like I was in class. So it was so right on, and yet she's coming from personal experience. It was amazing. I do remember five years ago when we were walking through the streets of Johannesburg and I said, oh, Emily, you'd make such a wonderful bishop. And she said, I don't think they're going to, first of all, ordain a woman bishop, least of all me. And it was then that I was struck by her deep, deep humility, but her deep interest to serve above all else. That really shined oh, yeah. through, didn't yes. it? Yes. And the humility that really just brought everything right back to the gospel. You know, this is not about power or finances, which is what the church was resisting anyway. And that she could say, this is about serving. I don't need all of that. And that is what has won the hearts of the villagers, the community she's in, and the bishops. It's amazing. Right. 
Right. And it's certainly a story we see coming from history where the Christians who recognize most profoundly that the work we do is God's mm -hmm. work and we we just we just need to put self in perspective. Yeah. I mean, I what actually surprised me is sometimes when you are a bishop and you have that power and someone comes in and says I don't need that power to have your title and I want to serve. That could be threatening. And she didn't show any, indicate any signs of threat. Like the bishops really welcomed her and are able to laugh at themselves when they forget to include sisters when they're talking. And I, mm -hmm. I was really impressed. And I, I really, what struck me was the presence of Rose, the second woman mm -hmm. bishop and the, just the camaraderie and companionship they had as the first two women bishops in the church of uh, the Anglican Church of Kenya, and how God sort of brought her a traveling companion in this process very quickly within a year. Yes, that's true, and it it's often validating when you have that travel companion because you look at them like, did I just make this up? Nope, you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right, so God sent them out two by two. Exactly. And thank the Lord for Emily Rose. Yeah. Well, we're just so grateful that God has introduced us to the work of Emily and that we had a ple the pleasure and privilege of interviewing her today. Yes. And we want to um, thank Landon, who is our technology guru who helps put this all together on behalf of CBA. Yes. Looking for more information about CBE and our mission for biblical equality? Then please visit cbeinternational.org for more information. And please be sure to tune in each week for new episodes here or wherever else you listen to podcasts.